Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello there, everybody. This is Dr. Cindy Banier with Dr. Cindy Speaks, and I am so honored to be here today with Peter Galbraith, Ambassador Peter Galbraith, who had been working previously with the UN mission to Afghanistan. And we are here today to talk a little bit about uh, his thoughts on how things have been going there. Ambassador Galbraith, welcome. Good to be with you, Cindy. Yeah, thank you so much. Before we jump into what is going on right now in Afghanistan, can you go ahead and tell our audience here a little bit about your experience and, and why it is that we should listen to somebody like you about what's going on there today? I, I'm not, I, I, far be it for me to say whether anybody should listen, but I have followed Afghanistan professionally since 1979, since the Soviet invasion, I worked on the issue for 14 years for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I might add one of the senators on the committee was uh, Joe Biden. And then in, and I made my first trip to Afghanistan on February 14th, 1989. And that actually with the Mujahideen, who had been funded by the United States. And that was actually the very day that the Soviet Union withdrew. And then in 2009, I was the UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, appointed me as an Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and the Deputy Special Representative of the United Nations in Afghanistan. And effectively, I ran the UN mission, in part because the ostensible Special Representative was mostly absent. And as he said, he couldn't manage a two-car motorcade. In, a, in particular, I was handling a relations with Pakistan, which were critical for Afghanistan, as well as the UN support for the 2009 presidential Afghanistan presidential elections, which the UN paid for, and uh, which were deeply fraudulent. And when I tried to do something to prevent the fraud and then to deal with it after it took place, I ended up being recalled, which is a polite language for fired. So good. And so I think that what's interesting, too, that you're just uh, telling us is a little bit about the, the history. And I think that in contemporary American politics, we forget that Afghanistan has been a contentious region geopolitically for a very long time. And it was strategically important in some of the proxy battles in the Cold War, and as well as with other regional powers. And this latest version that we're seeing in the news today is just the, the latest 
work in the latest iteration. It's not, this is just the, the saga of this uh, particular country and how it's been upon in a lot of these other scenarios globally. So let me tell, let me ask you a question about what you think about what's going on right now. What, what's your read on the withdrawal of Americans and then the subsequent swift collapse of the Afghan government? I, I watched the uh, Taliban takeover of Afghanistan with disbelief and horror. It, it, it started in the north, which had been the part of the country that had resisted the Taliban in the 1990s and spread to the west and, and then to the south, which was actually the Taliban's heartland, and then to the east and, and then to Kabul in a very short period of time. Uh, really, the whole collapse was something on the order of 120 hours. And I feel for, I feel for lots of people, for I feel certainly for my Afghan friends and colleagues who worked so hard to make the country a success in the 20 years uh, that the, since the U.S. Uh, invasion in 2000, and who are now, who now see all the all that they accomplished going up in, in smoke. I feel for the for women and girls who's, who had opportunity and that's now been shut off. I'm very concerned about the fate of the ethnic and religious minorities, notably the Hazara, mm. who are mm. 15% of the population who are Shiite mm. um, and, and therefore are viewed by the Sunni Taliban who are fundamentalists as apostates. And in their ideology, apostate should be killed. And in the 1990s, indeed, there were beginnings of genocide in the Hazara regions. And of course, I feel for the American and, and NATO servicemen and women who fought in Afghanistan and the 2,500 who lost their lives there. And in a mission that uh, obviously was a failure. So, you know, those are some of the feelings I have. And, and then, and I've been focused on trying to help Afghans get out. I've been urging the Biden administration to extend the number of, of people that it, it, it considers for being brought out and possible resettlement, not just interpreters and yeah. uh, who, those who worked with the military, the embassy, not just those who worked with our NATO partners, but also the United Nations, uh, Afghans who worked with the United Nations, because they also came in under the same mandate. Actually, the Security Council was a U.S.-sponsored uh, resolution. And uh, those who worked with humanitarian organizations, non-governmental organizations. And then there was a generation of Afghan journalists, yeah. many of whom were trained uh, by the USAID and to, for Western-style reporting, which is, of course, not going to be welcome in Taliban Afghanistan. I'm talking to these people, trying to get, again, to get the administration to expand the list of, of people who are vulnerable. And we can easily do this. After Vietnam fell in 1975, we eventually took in 1.4 million people from Vietnam, wow. Cambodia, Laos. They've all contributed a lot to our country. The way they got here, we, we had most of them came as on rickety boats. Mm. Some number drowned at sea in the South China Sea. Others ended up being attacked by Thai pirates. 
and then years in refugee camps in places like the Philippines before eventually being resettled here. So Hmm. I, I do hope we can do the process more quickly. Yeah, I agree with that too. And I actually, although Afghanistan is not my region, I actually had some classmates of mine from my studies in Japan who came there under what's called the Japanese Development Scholarship. And they had been government officials and other leaders, and they were being trained at the master's level in public administration. So they were in class with me. One of them, two of them that are in Kabul still uh, are not able to get out. One of whom was working for the USIP, the United States Institute for Peace, and another is working for Care International. And it's, it's very sad to see the situation with what they're doing and how they can keep their families safe and how they're going to be able to get out. So I, I really feel for the people. And I think, though, beyond that, and I wanted to get your read on this, is there's Taliban group that's coming in does seem to be a very different type of group. And they're making promises. They're making um, claims of amnesty. In fact, I have one uh, friend of mine who is a professor at Herat University who said that weeks ago, a Taliban delegation had came in and told them that they were going to be able to allow women to continue to study and essentially brokered a deal with their university. So how worried should we be about the Taliban backtracking on all of these seemingly peaceful starts they have here? I think we should be very worried. It's certainly a good thing that that, that they're making the right kind of promises. That's better than not making the promises. And it may be, in fact, I think it's likely that it will be less uh, repressive than the the Taliban rule in the 1990s. Mm. But the Taliban rule in the 1990s was horrific not only denying education to girls, not allowing women to work or even to leave their homes except wearing burqas and company of a male relative, very brutal punishments, stoning people to death, mostly women for, uh, for any kind of sexual relations outside of uh, marriage and uh, public executions and all, all that sort of thing. Right. To say that it'll be better than that is, of course, welcome, but that doesn't like mean it's very bar, good. Right? And, and then in Herat, they made those promises. But when women students and women staff showed up at the university the other day, they were turned away. So oh, really? it, it remains to be seen as to what actually uh, is going to happen. But I, I nice. certainly think we, we should be worried. Okay. That's good, because I, I think that there's, you know, especially for me, there's a part of me that wants to be hopeful that because of the, the swiftness of it, that there was the kind of community groundwork and some compromise that might have been made ahead of time, that there could be some stability within the country with the Taliban coming in. But I definitely think that even the most hopeful among us are definitely waiting to see how things are going to work out and especially those who are very well aware of the the horrors from the Taliban's past rule. I I did want to take another just pivot here on what 
happened with the U.S. withdrawal. I, I'd like your thoughts on that because there's a lot of criticism on how it went and whether or not it was the right move to make. And can you tell me a little bit about what you think about that? What, how long could the U.S. have stayed? It, would leaving earlier have been better or later or not at all? T- tell me what you think. In, in your question, the first is, did the U.S. do the right thing in leaving? Could it, for example, have maintained uh, 2,500 troops uh, for a longer period of time and prohibited, pro- stop this kind of catastrophic collapse? And secondly, could the withdrawal have been handled more smoothly? And first, I just have to observe, I said earlier that my first trip into Afghanistan was on the very day that the Soviets withdrew, February 14, 1989. Mm. And the Soviet-installed regime of Najibullah, it actually lasted more than two additional years. In fact, it even outlasted the Soviet Union itself. Whereas in this case, the, the, the collapse of the American-sponsored Afghan government didn't even last until the August 31st deadline for the Americans to complete their troop withdrawal. Mm. So it, it, there is, there, there's only one way to describe this as a catastrophic failure of United States policy, of United mm. States actions over the last 20 years. And, and there absolutely needs to be accountability for this. And I think President Biden actually correctly pointed his fingers at some things. Uh, the United States entered Afghanistan with a very light footprint in 2001. It had special forces working with the Northern Alliance, which was a coalition of Tajik and Hazar and Uzbek Afghans who had opposed the Taliban. They still controlled 15% of Afghanistan's territory on September 11th, 2001. And the Americans went in and enabled them, and so of course supported by American air power, Mm -hmm. uh, special forces, uh, a few thousand, to oust the Taliban. And uh, very quickly Mm -hmm. to Kabul and then Kandahar. And that the mission was accomplished. The, the, The people who had held who had given shelter Osama bin Laden were gone and Osama bin Laden himself and Al-Qaeda either were, well, Osama bin Laden escaped and uh, Mm -hmm. Al-Qaeda was at least in in good part destroyed. The mission transformed, the Bush administration transformed the mission into this extraordinary nation building exercise, Mm -hmm. but not nation building that the Northern Alliance might have wanted. Yeah. Uh, or indeed that any Afghans particularly were attracted to, but what the U.S. thought ought to Afghanistan ought to be like. Yes. So what did they do? They created a constitution for Afghanistan that made it one of the most centralized countries in the world. And not only was every government official, even local teachers, ultimately appointed by the authorities in Kabul and in particular by the president, but within Kabul, power was concentrated in the president and very little power was left to the parliament. And this in one of the geographically most diverse countries and ethnically most diverse countries. And Afghan, so you ended up always having a Pashtun president that the Pashtuns are the largest group in the country, 45%. But the Tajiks were the ones who had been in the Northern Alliance and the Hazars, they were 
25%, 15%. And if you had a parliamentary system, you might have had coalition building among these groups. But instead, you, you had one group that was in charge and the others left out. And then this was followed by, in 2009, 2013, 2017, a series of, of massively fraudulent presidential elections. And remember, all the powers concentrate in the presidency. So this is winner take all. And, and how were this, the fraud executed? It was carried out by corrupt power brokers. It turns out it's pretty hard to crack down on corruption, even if you're inclined to do that, when, when the people who stole the election for you, the, the people who are stealing from the country are the same people who stole the election for you on, mm-hmm. for, on your behalf. So th- that was, and so there was massive corruption. It started at the top, but it went all the way down, even for um, ordinary Afghan policemen who might have wanted to be honest. He could be because... He had to make payoffs all the way up the, the, the chain of command. And so you ended up with a government that was uh, corrupt, ineffective, illegitimate because of the repeated stolen elections. And it, it, it was not a suitable partner. And yet we had a military strategy uh, that General David Petraeus, uh, who was the commander in Afghanistan at one point and an architect of U.S. counterinsurgency strategy, what he always said very clearly, a counterinsurgency strategy can only work if you have a a local partner. And yet the military commanders knew didn't have a local partner and they knew it since their strategy needed a local partner. They pretended they had one. Hmm. It, It is a classic military mistake, which is inexcusable, which is you ha- they had a strategy and then they tried to fit the facts to the strategy. Whereas to, to have an effective strategy, you start with the facts and then you develop your strategy based on the facts. And the fact was we didn't have a partner. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I'm really glad that you walked us through that because I think that, that is part of what people don't really understand. Even from my perspective, I knew that the nation building component was a flawed strategy and that there was a lot of that like you described the the strategy the american strategy uh, and having the, the local facts fit to that strategy rather than tailoring what needed to be done to the local situation the part that really added uh clarity for me based on what you said was when you're talking about how the corruption really weakened the local government so that there in essence wasn't a good partner for any type of strategy there. And that kind of explains why for 20 years we've had this ongoing just kind of money pit essentially in the Afghan region without really seeing substantial gains. You think that's a fair way to look at that? Yes, it is. Just to illustrate, and we of course spent they're different calculations directly, uh, almost a trillion dollars, uh, including indirect expenditures, more than uh, about two trillion. And we had a, about 2,500 ca- casualties in the military and maybe another 3,400 contractors, uh, U.S. contractors. The, 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 and we spent h- hundreds of billions on 
trying to train and equip an Afghan army, an mm -hmm. Afghan police, building up local government, trying to promote economic development. And let me illustrate in a very concrete way why this failed, why not, not having a partner caused it to fail. Counterinsurgency strategy has four elements, clear, hold, govern, and build. So the first part is clear. NATO comes in, the U.S. primarily, mm -hmm. and clears an area of the enemy, of the Taliban. Okay. But the, the U.S. forces can't hold it because they'd just be there forever. So then they need right. Afghan forces, police and military to hold it. They don't really weren't capable of doing that, but they, that, they may have a more capable part of it. Then you need uh, a local administration to administer it. But you need to have then an honest local administration that can first govern effectively and win the pop, the loyalty of the population. That was totally out. And of course, then you go to build, which is to provide economic development so people's lives get better. When you look at and and then once you've done all that, what's supposed to happen? The the people who were mildly supportive of the insurgents of the Taliban, they're supposed to come over to your side. Right. The people who are middle support, they just lower their heads and, and stay out of the way. And then the population now having confidence in the new administration, they rat out the hardline insurgents and you can go and, and arrest them. Yeah. But the reality was something more like Sicily with the mafia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the Taliban, in fact, were often in league with the local administration. So anybody who ratted out a Taliban member would find the risk, and this literally happened, of having his uh, seven-year-old child hanging on a fruit tree in his orchard. So they didn't, any more than you would have gone to the local police in Sicily during the mafia's heyday. And, and so the whole strategy basically never worked. And, it, and it, even on the economic development side, we spent billions. One of the projects is we spent billions building roads in Afghanistan. Why did we build roads? Because the idea was that farmers, subsistence farmers, could now raise their incomes by sending their crops to market. Yeah. But the corrupt police then set up checkpoints. And by the time the farmer took his crops to market and got back, he had been robbed. Yeah. And, and he had even less. So he remained a subsistence farmer. But he wasn't just a, he, he was also somebody who was angry about what had happened. He would, would have then been sympathetic to the Taliban or, or even a possible recruit. And the main consequence of having built all those roads is that it gave the Taliban direct access to parts of the country in this year, 2021, mm -hmm. that they hadn't otherwise had access to. So they were able to take areas that had been Northern Alliance strongholds very easily. It, it, there, there's nothing good to be said about the, the counterinsurgency strategy that the United States pursued for 20 years. To be sure, there was a lot of things that changed in Afghanistan, but and for the good, particularly in terms of women's education, women's rights of ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. But but in terms of a, a successful military strategy. The thing was a failure and the military commanders should have known it. Yeah. And in terms of both the military strategy and the nation building component, because 
you that your the nation didn't even stand before the military engagement completely ended as you pointed right. out already so yeah and that goes to your your the second part of your question right uh, uh, you know, many people have argued that well president biden could have left the 2500 soldiers there but yes the afghans weren't ready to fight and uh, of course after 20 years, you, you have to ask the question that Biden asks, when are they ever going to be ready to fight next, another year, another five, another 10, another 20? <laughs> there was no suggestion of change, but some would say, nonetheless, it was worth keeping 2,500 troops there in order to prevent a, a Taliban takeover. But that was actually never possible. What one needs to remember is that Donald Trump or the Trump administration Mm -hmm. negotiated a deal with the Taliban in 2020. They did it without including the Afghan government. And mm -hmm. it was, in effect, a surrender deal. Yeah. Uh, and the deal was the United States would have all its troops out of Afghanistan by May 2021. And in return, the Taliban wouldn't attack the United States forces. Mm -hmm. And it was that truce while we withdrew that enabled the U.S. to have 2,500 troops. If President Biden had broken the, the Trump deal, what would have happened is that uh, the Taliban would have started uh, attacking U.S. troops. If, if President Biden said they were staying, they would have been subject to attack. Sure. And 2,500 troops is not a critical enough mass to defend themselves. So at that point, you would have had to bring in more troops, perhaps 10, 15, 20,000. And uh, President Biden was not prepared to do that. But it isn't a question as if, 2,500 could stay indefinitely. That was not in the cards. Yeah. So I, I appreciate you breaking that down because I think that although the optics look really bad for Biden, I do think that it's important that, like you pointed out, that this was essentially a surrender deal that was brokered by Trump last yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> with, with uh, the Taliban. Yeah. And in, in fact, he was going to have the Taliban come to Camp David on September 11th That's to, right. to, to sign the deal. And the Afghan government wasn't even going to 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 be there. But I don't mean this as to say a, a partisan attack on 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 Trump. I'm just pointing out that when you you know that he, he, Donald Trump made the decision that he was going to end this forever war. He thought that was good politics. He then negotiated an agreement that would have ended America, the forever war, because it would have withdrawn the United States. And it was an agreement that enabled the United States to withdraw all its troops without any casualties. And, and in fact, I think the last casualties were in March of last American soldier who died in hostile action was March of 2020. Hmm. But all I'm saying is that if President Biden had broken that deal, and in fact, he did extend the date from the Trump date to from May to August, August. American yeah. troops would have been in harm's way and there would have had to have been many more. Now, the, the other critique that's made of, of President Biden is the rapidity of the collapse. And I have to say, I, I, someone who knows Afghanistan well after working on it for 40 years, who has never subscribed to the convention the conventional wisdom and intelligence on uh, intelligence about this. I've always been skeptical. Mm -hmm. I did not anticipate this kind of rapid collapse. 
And I, I thought the country was going to be in for a prolonged period of civil war. I assumed that the Taliban could take Kandahar, the, the second largest city, mm -hmm. Jalalabad in the east. But it would be much harder in the Tajik areas, like places like Mazari Sharif and, and mm -hmm. even in the Herat, where there was a strong local warlord, Ismail Khan. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, in, in fact, the collapse was first in the north, then in the west, and, and the third place to go was the south and the fourth, the east. Mm -hmm. In that sense, I was, I was wrong. But, but, but I, I can understand why it was hard to anticipate this kind of collapse. But here's clearly what did happen, which is as the Taliban began to take over districts, and some of these they were doing making deals with local with the Afghan security forces right. who incidentally uh, had not been paid for months uh, who depended on a US style logistics chain because that's how we trained them unlike the Taliban so they didn't eat unless they got their you know rations delivered the Taliban mm -hmm. lived off the land they you know, they didn't have ammunition unless it was delivered so you know the troops were in, in having facing difficult physical conditions, they were demoralized and their commanders were making deals. Also, of course, the commanders were stealing parts of their salaries or there were ghost soldiers who weren't actually who were listed as if they were on the existed. But in fact, it was a way for the commanders to skim the payroll. In, mm -hmm. in, in any event, the Taliban attacked. They would take over districts and then the whole process accelerated. And at a certain point, I think it, for even for Afghans who military who would otherwise have fought, they saw Afghanistan as a lost cause. And nobody wants to fight or risk their life in a war that is already lost. We, you know, men, and in this case, it's all men, will make heroic sacrifices if if they you know think there's a chance of success if they can really defend their country or mm -hmm. accomplish their country's goals but once it's already completely lost yeah. you know, there, there are very few people who want to risk their lives in those circumstances so as the collapse accelerated then it be, the, the afghan military began to see it, that it was lost or believe it mm -hmm. i think too i think you, that's a really great point that there's the the hope component was gone for the long-term sustainability of the Afghan government. I think also I take the community development lens on that. The Taliban was always going to be able to play the long game because it's their country. And they also were clearly much better at making the necessary relationships to be successful. And however they wanted to move in once the Americans were gone, they just knew that it was a day in the future. And Given the lack of hope, as you described, in the, the structure of the Afghan government, it made a natural partnership with a group that was already existing, that already had networks, to, to take some leadership from that point, because they had already negotiated a lot of deals. I had heard that they, they had been working on deals in areas around the country for months at a time, knowing that the withdrawal was forthcoming. Yes, um, I, I think that is correct. They, they were engaged in negotiation. I think this has been repeated very often, but the, I think the, the Taliban may at one point have told the Americans, you may have the clocks, but we have time. Yeah. But it, it, of course, there, 
it's important to bear in mind that the, the Taliban is not a movement with broad popular support in Afghanistan. It, it certainly would never win an election. And they're, they're, they're particularly in the cities and particularly in Kabul, there are hundreds of thousands or millions of Afghans who are in fear, who are, who's, who see everything that they worked for 20 years has gone up in smoke. Women and children, though, of course, that women and girls, that's half the population, but men who built their businesses, who were part connected to a globalized economy in, in South Asia, which is a booming part of the world. All of that's gone. Not only do you have, is there a, a sort of primitive regime, but all the economic ties are going to be cut. Yeah. The banking system's gone because yes. uh, the United States has frozen the $10 billion that the Afghanistan had with the Federal Reserve. Hmm. That for the many Afghans who benefited from the Western presence, yeah. their life, they're going to have a plunging lifestyle and radical yeah. change. And of course, I've been sitting watching on the internet watch and, or watching hundreds of TV channels. The Taliban certainly are going to crack down on all of that. I think there's signs that they're already suppressing social media. Mm. Yeah, that's what I was worried about too. And actually my friend Miliad wrote a really beautiful and sad piece about him preparing for evacuation and he had his bags packed and he had packed away his degrees and his children had put their school books in their bags and he broke down just thinking how the day before he had walked down the street and got a, an espresso and was on his way to work and how his life was crumbling right in front of him. And uh, I think that there is also, it's important to remember that human side of what's happening to the people there. And as much as we like to talk about what it would look like to be a refugee and how other countries can help take in people who are refugees, people who are at that point where they are refugees are in very dire straits. A lot of people are going to resist leaving because that's their home, their livelihood, their business, their family. It's not as easy as just packing up and, and walking away. And the consequences for the individual people there is going to be very big and it is continuing to be big. So on that note, I wanted to just wrap up here with a few final thoughts from you. I think that we got a really great and in-depth look on the history of Afghanistan and the history of the engagement here and the landscape of the withdrawal. And what I want to hear from you is what's next? What would be the best and most appropriate steps for both the United States and the global community to take in regards to relations with Afghanistan? The uh, power of the United States and its allies uh, is uh, very limited because, after all, uh, we were on the losing side of this 20-year war. That said, of course, the United States is uh, still the most important country in the world, and it, it has a, a fair amount of leverage. And there are some things that the United States can do. My view is that the United States should continue to maintain a diplomatic presence, a very small one, in Afghanistan. You know, people, some people think diplomatic 
recognition means you approve of a country, but that's not true. All it means is you recognize that what is indisputably true, which is the Taliban have by force taken control of Afghanistan. There's no to main to continue diplomatic relations in no way imply approval. We had diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union all through the Cold War, but mm-hmm. didn't mean we approved of the Soviet Union. Uh, so that and, and doing that then would allow us to do three things. One would we'd have some eyes on the ground and we'd have some ability to push the Taliban on the issue of women and, and children. I'm oh, sorry, women and girls. Also to on the issue of protecting the, the Hazara, the 15% Shiite minority who, who in the late 1990s faced the beginnings of genocide. And finally, and probably most importantly, this unfolded in such a rapid way that there are literally tens of thousands of Afghans who were associated with the international effort. And not just the US military, not just our NATO allied militaries, not just the embassies, but the, also the United Nations staff, also the uh, NGO staff, uh, also journalists, also humanitarian organizations. I mean, there, there are a range of them. And if we're still there, we will be in a position to help those people, or those, of, those people who want to leave to get uh, special immigrant visas, to, to fly them out, to be able to get them re- perhaps also resettled in other countries. I think Canada said it will take 20,000. Australia will take a yeah. number. So th- these are constructive things that we can still do. That the uh, the opportunity, of course, to remake Afghanistan, well, <laughs> it was never a wise idea, and and that, of course, is completely gone. Exactly, and I think that it's a great time to talk a little bit more about what it means to be a refugee and what immigration processes could look like. And I I do think uh, that keeping normalized relations is going to be a big deal. And I do hope that we there's hope for us to be able to do that, at least uh, for this time period. And then any further components we can apply multilateral pressure. I think that will also be a big deal if the Taliban truly want to be a governing force and not just an authoritarian dictatorship but that will yet to be seen. So any final thoughts, anything that you think people just really should know or think about in terms of what's going on with Afghanistan now? I would have, have two thoughts. The first is to ask people to have a thought to the people of Afghanistan and to open their hearts uh, to new refugees who will come to this country as we have with so many others and so many of them have contributed so much to our country. So I imagine that the Afghans, who include lots of educated people, will also do that. And the second point, I think, is to say this is a, a been a it's a terrible outcome. We need to rethink how we approach the the world. There there are interventions that work. Almost always, that's where we intervene on behalf of a local party to help them accomplish their objectives. That was the 1990s in the Balkans mm-hmm. when we intervened in Bosnia, stopped the genocide there. But we really, we were supporting the Bosnian government in accomplishing right. its objective of holding the country together. And then in 99 in Kosovo to help that 
the Kosovars gain independence. In both those operations, we the, the, the Bosnia operation cost, I don't know, less than 10 billion, the Kosovo operation about 10 billion. There wasn't a single American or single NATO uh, soldier who died in hostile action. When we have these ambitious exercises as in Afghanistan and Iraq, where we try to remake countries the way we think they should be, we're doomed. And the Iraq has been, I don't know, two or three trillion, Afghanistan over a trillion directly, another trillion maybe indirectly. And, and we need to hold people accountable for the yeah. failures, including the, the military commanders. I know, the, I know that so often the military is off limits. We, we can only just say thank you for your service. I absolutely thank those who served in Afghanistan, the, the enlisted men, the, the, the junior officers. But when we get up to the flag officers and the top generals, yes, they need to be held accountable for pursuing a strategy that, as I said, involved fitting the facts to the strategy they decided on rather than basing the strategy on the facts. It was catastrophic. So that, that's a, another part. And the final point I'd say, you know, there's the endless amount of endless amount of commentary about how this is such a blow to the United States standing in the world. We're no longer going to be a great power and that kind of nonsense. The same kind of argument was used for why we had to stay in Vietnam. If we got out it would, we, the, and the country fell, it'd be a great blow to America standing in the world. The, the Vietnamese government did fall and the United States continued to be the dominant power in the world. In fact, it might have been better off no longer being engaged in, in Vietnam. So I don't think that right. there's going to be lasting damage uh, to the United States. And finally, I know I said finally, but uh, <laughs> my father always said when you talk, you say finally or in conclusion a number of times, it gives your audience hope. But I, I, I hope we can have a serious discussion about this with all, all the partisan nonsense. I've yeah. looked at was it Ted Cruz and the congressman from Fort Myers of Byron Donalds tweeting mm -hmm. about Clarissa Ward and CNN that she shouldn't have been wearing a hijab and she was simply reporting what she saw on the streets that they, that the Taliban were friendly while they were seemed friendly while they were shouting uh, death to America that's news reporting and, right. and let's have a serious discussion and not that kind of you know I don't know what it is. Is it woke? Is it partisanship? I, I don't even know what all these words are, but it's just, it, there's one word that applies that kind of thing. It's stupid. It's unbefitting of, yeah. of the elected leaders in our country. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I like to think about policy and our goals and how we can project the best possible scenario for the United States and the world. And so I, I agree with you with that pettiness that we've been seeing on this. And I also appreciate you saying that we need to hold people accountable. I agree that we need to hold the leaders accountable. We need to hold the top folks in the military who are making those strategy decisions accountable. But we ultimately do want to thank the folk, the people who are the enlisted people in the military who did sacrifice, who just had to go and do a job there. Their sacrifices were not in vain. It was them fighting for their country and for what we all believe in, which is a, a better 
world as well. So want to thank those folks for the sacrifices that they made for sure, but definitely hold people accountable. And I really appreciate your insights on this. I, I really don't think uh, there are very many people who have as much inside, insight as you, and I appreciate you sharing your time and your thoughts on this. And myself as somebody who is, I got international development experience. This is an important thing for me and we're watching and I really hope that we can get back to some of those better global strategies when we do want and need to engage that we are engaging with local partners in ways that local partners want and need to be engaged with. I do think that is a very important differentiation in strategy, as you had pointed out. So thank you so much for being with me here today, Ambassador Peter Galbraith, and I just appreciate your time and talent. Very good talking to you again, Cindy. Thank you. All right, have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyer.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyer.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyer.